Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, conversations for transformation. Hello, my friends. This is Life Over Coffee, and I am Rick Thomas. I'm so glad that you are here. If you're listening to the podcast, watching the video, And of course, we have a lot of people reading our articles as well. Whichever way that you benefit from our resources, I'm very grateful that you do. I'll be even more grateful if you will share them with others. That would be fantastic. We want to bring hope and help for you and for others. And so the big goal here uh, is for each person to benefit and then to pass it along to someone else so that they can too. I just received an email from a gentleman named Steve. He became a supporting member of our ministry. Steve, welcome to our family. I'm so glad that you are here. I believe that he operates a counseling ministry and he's wanting to use our resources in his counseling ministry and I'm very grateful for that. Uh, Our articles and videos and podcasts, they make outstanding homework assignments. They really supplement whatever is going on in the counseling office. And so if you're doing the work of discipleship, doing the work of counseling, and you need supplemental resources, you're dealing with someone who's struggling with anger, another person struggling with fear, you got a couple that's having marriage conflict, communication problems, whatever the issues may be, we have written on it. We probably have a resource for it. And so I would love for you to use our ministry. You can take the link, uh, lifeovercoffee.com. You can put it on your church website. Uh, Again, any way that you can just let others know they have complete, full, free access uh, to our resources to use them personally, then also to use them as they care uh, for others. So please take advantage of those. Steve, thank you so much, uh, not just for using our resources in your counseling ministry, but also for being a supporter of our ministry because it's the support actually that makes it free. Uh, and so that works very well. So thank you so much for becoming a monthly supporter. Now, uh, Steve and others, you may not know that uh, we, we really focus on leaders. We are a leadership development ministry. And so we want to come alongside pastors, elders, small group leaders, deacons, disciple makers, counselors, uh, people who are leading and are pouring into the lives of others. We want to come alongside those people. And so, Steve, you have a free access. Well, you have access, paid access uh, to our private forum. And inside that forum, you can ask any kind of question. And that's where we interact. I do not have the ability to talk to people uh, on social media because I just don't have the time that I can devote to it with all the other things that are going on. And so we have brought all of our social engagement down to one place, and that is our supporting community. And so Steve and others, I want you to know that if you are a supporter of our site, then uh, we do leaders over coffee as well. And so you're a leader and you have questions. And of course, you can ask those on our uh, private forum. So please take advantage of that. This is the holiday season. I'm wearing a, it looks like a a shirt here that has Myrtle Beach written on it. It's kind of out of sync with the times. Uh, But it's Christmas, it's the holiday season at Myrtle Beach as well. I'm just trying to stay warm. Uh, But anyway, it is the holiday season. We're we're running up on Thanksgiving, then we have Christmas, and this is a happy time 
for, for a lot of people, not for everyone, of course. Uh, for some people, this is a very challenging time. But as I was thinking about the season, I was thinking about gift giving, which is really what happens during this time of the year, particularly on Christmas Day. And I was thinking about a theology of gift giving. And, and so what would that be? What would that mean? When you think about a theology of gift giving, what comes to your mind? Can you articulate it? Well, I trust that uh, what I'm about to share with you will help you to have a, a fuller picture of gift giving that goes beyond a, a punctiliar moment, that goes beyond a single day. And so a theology of gift giving, a robust theology, is very expansive. In fact, it runs throughout the year as Christians. That is our heart attitude, as Jesus said in 1045 of Mark. I did not come here to be served, but I came to serve. And he does that every day of the year, including Christmas Day. And that is the heart of gift giving. That's the heart of what it means to have a robust theology of gift giving. And so I want to talk about that uh, in this a particular presentation. Now, you again, you can watch the video, listen to the podcast, and I have a full article that you can read on our website. It's titled, Are You Generous? Understanding a Theology of Gift Giving. On Christmas Day, people all over the world exchange presents. It's a cultural event full of fun memories for most people. And I like many aspects of the cultural Christmas, but sadly, it loses its meaning for many people because of the secularization of the Christmas season. In fact, we can't say Merry Christmas anymore. I'm a little bit more stubborn than the, the average bear, and so I do say Merry Christmas, but that's not politically correct anymore because of the secularization of Christmas. Uh, it's now Happy Holidays. And for those people, Christmas is about the economy. It's about presents. Sometimes it's about family conflict. And it negates the idea of a generous gospel in most of the world, which is why it's vital to talk about a theology of gift giving. Perhaps, I hope, that a refresher on sacrifice is the big operative word here. Gift giving is about sacrifice, more specifically not just sacrificing on Christmas Day by giving a physical gift, but true biblical gift giving is the sacrifice of a person's life that has benefit throughout the year in anyone who receives that sacrifice. And so maybe a refresher on sacrifice will help us to recalibrate our minds to the real reason for the season. Our culture no longer knows the Christocentric purpose of Christmas. Happy Holidays is their way of talking about the celebration. And I'm not suggesting the evolution of the season makes it wrong. And what I mean by evolution, it has evolved. Uh, I have lived through over 60 Christmases now, and, and believe me, 
uh, the Christmases that I enjoyed the first decade of my life are radically different, culturally speaking, from the way they are now. And that's what I mean by the evolution of the Christmas season. It doesn't necessarily have to be wrong. For example, our family participates in many events throughout the year, cultural, secular events, things that are not Christocentric. We go to ball games, we gather with friends, we have done mud runs, we've gone to dirt track racing, we have done all sorts of things. And we love living in God's world, and we love enjoying the benefits of God's world, and we can participate in the culture, and I highly recommend it, without craving the culture. A heart that is governed by God's Word can interact with the culture's traditions, even Christmas, even a secularized Christmas, if, if we have it top of mind that we want to reach those who do not understand Christianity. I mean, who knows? Perhaps the Lord will provide opportunities for you to introduce someone to Jesus through your secularized activity with them. We're talking about setting aside our preferences for the greater good of another without compromising where we're sinning. Paul, for example, saw the wisdom in this perspective. Sometimes he was willing to set aside his preferences in order to bless others. You read this in 1 Corinthians 8.13 as one example where he said, quote, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble... I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. He did not mind setting aside what he believed as long as he did not compromise. But he set aside in order to participate and not be a stumbling block to others. Participating in secular things is what I'm talking about here now. Uh, that does not have to be wrong. And, of course, we want our children also to experience the real meaning of Christmas, too. Those things can run down a parallel track. I mean, if all you understand and participate in is the secular Christmas, that would be bad. But if you participate in the secular Christmas, but yet you, you really instill in your own heart and mind and in, in the hearts and minds of your children, the, the real meaning of Christmas, you can run down those parallel tracks and there should not be any, any conflict or any confusion. The problem with little children, though, understanding Christmas's real purpose is, is harder for little hearts who really wrap their idea of Christmas with presents. That's why communicating the biblical Christmas is a call to action to present a broader understanding of gift giving because we did not want our children, when they were younger, we did not want them to know that, that sacrifice and giving and the benefits of receiving was all tied to one day, a secular event called, called Christmas. That's not what Christmas really meant. That, that was not the original intent. The incarnation of Christ is the continuation of a more magnificent narrative that leads to a deeper relationship that our Father desires for us. The Christmas story on December the 25th actually has many, many chapters. It is an ongoing event. 
one isolated event on the 25th of December is devoid of the more abundant meaning of the gospel. Christmas, without the rest of the story, it would end up on a large pile of man-centered traditions. But there is a more mind-blowing gospel story that predates the Christmas season. For example... In Genesis 3.15, long before Christ came, long before Christ was born, God gave us a Christmas hint, talking about crushing the serpent's head. And this prediction of Christmas, the incarnation of Christ, is why it means so much more than showing up at someone's house, eating their food, swapping presents, and leaving. Imagine if Jesus showed up as a baby... Here he is, cool manger, love the stable. Why wasn't there any room in the inn? And that was the extent of his relationship with us as a baby. We would check the event off our list. Maybe we would breathe a sigh of relief because it's over for another year. And some people only see Christmas as that, that moment in time that they can check off the list, and maybe possibly for some, maybe a lot, a sigh of relief because, thank God, it's over. If Christmas is an abbreviated, exhausting event, and that was the end of it, the celebrators are not celebrating the Christian Christmas. A broader view and a broader practice of Christmas. No, it brings rest, not spiritual depletion and physical fatigue. If all we get out of Christmas is spiritual depletion and physical fatigue, then we have really missed the point of Christmas. We don't have a robust theology of gift-giving and sacrifice. The gift of the Savior was a premeditated act from eternity past. He was planned, he was positioned to come at a particular time in a specific way for a specific purpose. Paul talked about the baby Jesus in Galatians where he said in Galatians 4 verses 4 and 5 that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive the adoption of sons. The point is that Christmas is not a singular event that is disconnected from the rest of our lives, from the rest of eternity. Christmas is a continuation of God's redemptive plan in our lives. There would be no redemption story without a Christmas story, And there cannot be a Christmas story without a more extensive narrative. The Father had to bring the Son into the world in a particular way to fulfill the promise of Genesis 3.15, that he's coming to crush the serpent's head. Enslaving sin had captured us. It had sentenced us to death. We needed a Savior. And Jesus swallowed death with his death. He suffered so that we would not suffer eternally. The Father's Christmas gift to us was much more than a baby in a manger. And so 
maybe a good question would be, what if our Christmas mirrored the entire gospel story? And it's not just a, a singular exercise of, of sacrifice on Christmas Day, the giving and receiving of presents. What if our gifts were part of a more excellent story in someone's life? As God gives to us every day of our lives, what if our Christmas mirrored that extended story as we bless individuals every day of our lives? Rather than just giving someone a gift, which is the extent of our relationship with them, what if the gift was a continuation of an ongoing impact in a person's life? Many of you are doing that now. You have people in your life that you are constantly giving to with gratitude and love and with thanksgiving from on high because of the privilege that you have to cooperate with God to meet this person throughout the year. That is a sacrifice that's far broader, far grander, than just the Christmas story. That is a closer representation of a robust theology of gift giving. Christmas would not be a moment in such a case if we are giving all the time in a long-form narrative. Christmas would not be a moment in an ongoing relationship with someone. That is what Christmas is to the Christian. Christmas is one piece of a grander story. It is a singular part of the Lord's ongoing work in our lives. It is one gift connected to a more extensive plan that reaches from eternity past to eternity future. That's what Christmas is. In eternity past, God was going to send the Son. The Son came on Christmas Day, and we will worship Him in eternity future. That is the full Christmas story. But it gets better. It gets better. We can cooperate with God in something more significant than annual gift giving. Baby Jesus was a beautiful gift, but his impact on our lives is more comprehensive than a seasonal moment. To understand how God can use us to impact another person beyond traditional gift giving, we have to really think about why did Jesus come? And that's that, that this. And that brings us to a beautiful text of Scripture in the book of Hebrews where the Hebrew writer talked about the birth of Jesus. Plainly stated, here's the succinct interpretation, Jesus came to die to set us free. In this text, uh, it, is, it is Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. I want to read it to you. But the succinct interpretation is, Jesus came to die to set us free. This is what the Hebrew writer said in chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Christ, Likewise, partook of the same things. He partook of flesh and blood. He became a human. Christmas Day is, what we, is when we typically celebrate that. He himself, likewise, partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, 
and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That's Hebrews 2, verses 14 and 15. And so here is a, a, a three-step layout of what happened. Jesus died to himself, you could say, in Philippians chapter 2. He, he left the Father's abode and said, I am going to do this. I'm going to come to earth and be born as a human, as a babe, in a stable, in a manger. Jesus, he gave up the life that he had. And he came here to sacrifice, to give himself. Now, why did he do it? Point number two, to destroy the works of the devil. And so the reason that he came and died was to destroy the works of the devil. Why did he want to destroy the works of the devil? Point number three, so he could benefit others. And that's what the last part of the text says, that he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those, you and me, who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. We were subjected to lifelong bondage, and we were never going to escape that bondage unless Jesus gave up what he had with the Father and came here, born of a virgin, and then died on the cross. He gave that sacrifice that destroyed the works of the devil, which opened the door to release us, who through fear and death were subject to lifelong bondage. Now, what if we, in a human way, model that gospel picture in our lives? It would follow a similar logic. It could look like this. And let me just walk through three steps again, but we apply it to ourselves. Number one, we die to ourselves. We give up our preferences. We, we sacrifice, number one. We die to ourselves. Number two, to help destroy the works of the devil in someone's life. And so you come alongside someone, and, and, you will, and, and they are captured, what Paul talked about in Galatians 6.1. They're caught in a transgression, for example. And you want to cooperate with God in helping them to get uh, unenslaved, out of bondage, now, in order to do that, you have to die to yourself. Uh, there is some preference giving up. There's some sacrifice that you have to give up. Number one, we die to ourselves. Number two, we want to destroy the works of the devil in someone's life. Number three, why do we want to do that? So they can benefit from our generosity, our cooperation with God in destroying the works of the devil. We want them to experience the same release that God has given to us. The greatest gift to anyone comes when we die to ourselves so that we can help them to be free. The most significant contribution we could ever give anyone is the daily death of ourselves for their benefit. Every mom knows this. Every mom dies daily. She gives up what she has to give up for the benefit of these little kids running around the living room. There is no greater love than dying for a friend, and that is John 15, 13. And that is how we mirror the gospel to others. That is at the heart of a theology of gift giving. Now, don't you think that is better than giving a necktie to someone on Christmas Day? And so Christ was born, this text in Hebrews 2, verses 14 and 15, Christ was born as a babe. He took on flesh 
and blood. And then he had to go through the door of death. He was a man born to die. And the door of death and his subsequent resurrection, that enabled him to destroy the works of the devil. I'm interpreting Hebrews 2 now. And so Jesus Christ was born flesh and blood. He went through the door of death as a man born to die. As he went through that door, his subsequent resurrection, he destroyed the works of the devil, made them inoperable. And once the devil was rendered impotent, he was able to release us from our sin. And that's what the Hebrew writer is teaching us in chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. What does this process mean to you? If you set aside your preferences, set aside your expectations, set aside your comforts, you can help another person to know Christ more effectively. Christ set aside who he was and what he had to rescue us. We can cooperate with the Lord to help destroy the works of the devil, the actions that keep people bound to sin. To help a person untangle themselves from sin is the best gift that we could ever give. This application of the Hebrew text is our calling. This is what we are to do as Christians. Die to ourselves for the good of others so they can be released from bondage. Now let me ask, do you know someone bound by sin? You do. We all do. To make it more challenging, do you know an annoying person bound by sin? And now you hear Jesus' statement, love your enemies in your ear. If you want to help them, then you must be like Christ. You'll have to set aside your preferences to serve them. To destroy the works of the devil in that passage means to render inoperable. This gospel privilege is an opportunity to search the Spirit, to hear what He would say concerning cooperating with the Lord to make inoperable the works of the devil that is active in others. I want to share with you three typical examples that we hear pretty regularly of people who need authentic gospel-giving sacrifice from others to help them overcome the devil's destructive works. Number one, a husband who seeks to satisfy his desire more than he wants to nourish and cherish his wife needs to learn how to walk through death, which would teach him how to love his wife practically. For this husband to ever get in a position to be able to love his wife well, he's got to set aside his, his desires and his preferences. He's got to die to himself, learn how to nourish and cherish his wife, and it will help her to grow and to mature. And this is a common person that, that we interact with on a weekly basis. The husband who doesn't have a robust theology of gift-giving doesn't want to set aside as Jesus did, doesn't want to die, doesn't want to act on his wife by destroying the works of the devil to help her to enjoy a greater freedom. He doesn't want to do that. Number two, a wife who struggles to respect her husband because her marriage dream is more important than his sin entanglements 
And so she too will have to walk through death to help destroy the works of the devil. A wife is a husband's greatest asset outside of God and God's grace, of course, or she can be his greatest liability. And there are many women uh, that have practiced this in a wonderful way, and God has used them in a transformative way in their husbands' lives that has made their husbands better husbands, better men, better fathers. And sometimes that is the route that, has, that a woman has to go down in order to get what she wants is that marriage dream. Sometimes she marries broken uh, individuals who are entangled in all kinds of sin. And it is incumbent upon her to cooperate with God in helping to untangle him from his caughtness, just like Paul said in Galatians 6.1. Brothers, sisters, wife, if anyone has caught, restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And then there's a third person, a son, born into a dysfunctional family. He too will have to walk through death, setting aside his longings for a healthy Christian home while asking God to use him to model the death of, the, of Christ in his home. I think back on that in my own life, and, and I did not know this. Uh, and I had no way, had no power uh, to be able to set aside my, my selfish cravings, my cravings that were good desires for a healthy home, but those good desires morphed into an ungodly idolatry to where I, re, where I responded very sinfully because I was not getting what I wanted, not even knowing that there's another path that I could walk down. I could momentarily set aside what I wanted, die to myself, help destroy the works of the devil, and maybe even possibly cooperate with God to help my parents, in this case, uh, to be released from the bondage of sin that they were in. All three of these individuals must decide if they want to live the life of the Savior in a practical and challenging way, or that they want self-focused desires met. The Savior set aside his desires for our greater good. Our self-sacrifice is a profound gospel application that challenges us to the core of our practical Christianity. What do I need to set aside to help deliver someone from sin? I am sure that Jesus preferred an uninterrupted relationship with his Father, but he saw another kind of joy that was set before him, and that joy motivated him to endure a cruel cross to rescue a fallen race. We can't save people, but we can emulate the gospel practically, as we daily die to ourselves, we can practically apply the life of Christ to others by how we set aside our desires for the greater good of those in need. Paul talked about it this way, working under the strength of God, that it overpowers any kind of, of impoverishment that he may have in his life. He said it this way in Philippians, not that I speak, not am I not that I'm speaking of being in need. For I have learned whatever situation I am to be content. That's a key phrase. Sometimes we haven't learned in whatever situation we're in to be content. 
He says, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of placing, facing plenty and hunger and abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Gospel-motivated gift-giving does not mean you won't receive the desires of your heart, and that is what a lot of people would be hearing right now. Setting aside your preferences does not say you have forever relinquished your hopes and dreams. That's what a lot of people are hearing right now. There is coming a day when the Savior will see the entire fruit of His hands. Setting aside your desires means you can't get what you want now. But you're not letting go of your desires. They're just not controlling you. They're just not managing your emotions. You are putting your preferences off for a season. God will not withhold His lavish love from you. He will always feel the desires of your heart in His time, in His way. Your point of focus must not be on what you want, but what you can give while trusting the Father to provide what you want in the way He chooses to give those things. My hope for you this Christmas is that your gift-giving goes far beyond gift exchanges on Christmas Day. May your gospel gift-giving impact lives throughout the year, especially those closest to you and for generations to come. I've titled this, Are You Generous? Understanding a Theology of Gift-Giving. A few questions to wrap up. Who close to you needs your help? Who is that person caught in sin, entangled in the bondage of sin, enslaved? Will you partner with them for the long haul? Will you keep pouring yourself out for them? Number two, some will say, if I pour myself out to someone, they will harm me. Of course they can. Of course they might. Please listen carefully. I am not suggesting that you place yourself in a vulnerable position that brings harm to you. Back the tape up and listen again. I am not suggesting you place yourself in a vulnerable position that brings harm to you. You do what depends on you with guard, guardrails. There are two ditches that you want to avoid. Not caring about someone caught in sin. Stay out of that ditch. The other ditch is putting yourself in harm's way. Stay out of that ditch, too. Each situation and each relationship needs courage and caution, and you have to discern how to walk that center space without falling in apathetic, I don't care, and I'm just going to be a doormat and make myself vulnerable regardless of the cost, particularly the physical cost to me. Stay out of those two ditches. Number three, will you identify someone you can come alongside of to help untangle them from temptation or sin? If you're not currently working with someone and helping them, would you ask the Father to place someone in front of you? What might that mean as you think about a specific person? Perhaps you will need to die to yourself so you can enter their life to help them mature. Again, I've titled this, Are You Generous? An Understanding, a Theology of Gift Giving. I would love for you to share the podcast video, share the article with anyone. This would be a great conversation to have in small group. And if, you, if this is new to you as far as this kind of generous gift giving, and you're unsure about those ditches, 
I don't want to be apathetic, but also don't want someone to hurt me. That is a very real concern. I would appeal to you to find someone who's a little farther along than you are, a little more mature. Uh, if you're a guy, find a man who can walk with you. Timothy, find your Paul. If you're a lady, find that Titus 2 lady who's a little farther along that can be, give you insight into how to stay out of those two ditches. And then be, begin practicing, imitating Christ who came on a day. He gave up what he had, and he eventually died on a cross and ascended. He destroyed the works of the devil. And that released a lot of people who are in bondage. And we can mirror that gospel story in people's lives throughout the year. God bless. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com.